0: The Digital Transition. The Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. So welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 11. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm actually really, really excited. I'm here chatting to Chris Linning. So Chris is a recently retired member from the facility management team of the Sydney Opera House. And, you know, this is probably one of Australia's most iconic buildings. And uh, I'm very grateful to have him here today. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Chris.
1: That's no problem, Nathan. So.
0: For the listeners that don't know who you are, um, can you share with us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, um, I have been fortunate enough to have been exposed to a multitude of engineering disciplines in my 48 years of working. My career started as a cartographic draftsman with uh, a traineeship with Commonwealth Government Civil Aviation. I mean, that wasn't just basic just drafting because we did aerial photography, advanced uh, surveying. Photographic dark rooms. Uh, I was working on radar screens, doing the map overlays for radars in the, in the uh, air traffic control towers. It moved on from that and uh, I spent seven years with ESO Australia when ESO was an entity in Australia that exposed me to petrochemical, mechanical, electrical, civil, architectural drafting. Uh, it was also this is early 80s, and I was started with CAD at that stage. So uh, they asked me to work on a computer-based drafting system and actually develop it and get it running. We had about 20 workstations in about 1985, all networked with plotter and backup facilities, which was a little bit of a cutting edge at the time. The Exxon Valdez, I don't know if you remember it, it was a, a large oil tanker that went aground in Alaska And when it went aground and the cleanup from the Exxon Valdez was a case of Exxon Worldwide having to sell off its assets to pay for the cleanup. And they decided to sell the section of the that I was in, the downstream, the retail side. So I was out of a job. All of us were out of the jobs. And I moved on and found a job with a a minerals exploration company that was based in Australia. It was uh, was an American-based company. Kennecott, I was doing geological mapping and I uh, was in charge of their computer systems in their Sydney office here, but it was in Papua New Guinea was most of our exploration work. After that, uh, we went on to, I was offered a, I took a job at the NRMA and I was their chief uh, mapping manager introducing colour maps to the NRMA, using computers to do colour mapping. Prior to that, they had a series of colours, but it was just usually just strip maps of the old days where it was just one bold colour, or purple or hot magenta or something like that. So we developed a a computer-based system that allowed us to do mapping in uh, proper uh, colour separation for printing, or original printing. And I eventually became the Print production manager for both the mapping as well as the internal uh, booklets that were handed out for tourist information guides to different uh, areas around Australia, all produced by the NRMA. I there, left there, had a year with a private structural engineer, it was a bit of a, just a bit of a, I'd say a time out holiday period. But uh, I managed to sit with a, a structural engineer and got to see a lot of work that was going on that I was totally ignorant of, and what was required regarding reinforcement and concrete and spanners and things like that. And then um, he, he uh, unfortunately, was just a single guy, and um, as in his business, his practice was a single entity. I think he kept me on for a period of time, out of more out of. Uh, responsibility than the fact that he could afford to pay me. So eventually started, I realised that I needed to find a job because it was just draining him financially. And that's when I got the job with the Opera House. That was 18 years ago, 19, oh, 2000, I arrived for the Olympics at the Opera House, left September last year. So that's about where I've been. I mean, in that time, the Opera House was basically employed to be a technical information manager, which meant drafting as well as looking after all the drawings and uh, specifications,
0: operation and maintenance manuals of the building. So it was a, a reasonable complex start. So you've gone from uh, uh, mapping out radar pla- uh, pla-
1: pa-
0: paths and stuff <coughs> like that to uh, one of the most complex shaped uh, buildings uh, designed in the 1960s and 1970s. So you touched briefly on your role now, 18 years working uh, for one asset. You know, over 18 years, technology has changed substantially. Over the over the 18 years, what well, how's your role transferred or tra- or transformed, or the 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 process in which you worked? So, what was the role you kind of played?
1: Well, I, I mean, I was I was my initial role was to sort out three years of neglected documentation because my predecessor had gone on sick leave. And he'd been with the company for 20-odd years, with the Opera House for 20 odd years, as the sole operator in one office. And uh, he went on sick leave and he retired while he was on sick leave. Oh. So there was about 18 months where people had no one doing what he was doing. And all they did was they just kept on putting all the plans from the projects into his office, hoping that one day someone would come along and sort it out. <laughs> and <laughs> So, so that was my job. When I walked into this office, it was a two-room two, two room office, whereas most people at the Opera House, space is very tight. I mean, you get a room which would be, say, you know, a three-metre by three-metre room space or something like that would probably have about six people working in at the Opera House just because of physical restraints on space in the building. I had two large Store rooms as my office, and they were just chock a block with um, microfilms, paper prints, uh, paper prints, old computer-based uh, computer systems, and there was absolutely no one there to tell me how they worked and what it was done. So that was—I spent three years literally just sorting out this work, uh, this documentation. But at the same time, uh, the Olympics had started. As I mentioned, I started with the Olympics and. The site was being used for some of the events for the Olympics as well as all of the you know, hosting of uh, formal meetings and lunches and things. And the events management team had limited capacity to actually draft up facilities and lay out systems on the forecourt or within the theatre spaces. So I just put my head up and said, well, oh, that's easy. I can just do that for you. That's just you know, a bit of drafting. And they just, jumped on the the opportunity, and all of a sudden I became sort of like working with a fairly busy team of event managers building event overlays on six of the venues around the site at the Opera House. That kept me very busy, but at the same time, um, I was getting – there was a lot of major capital work starting within the building because after a period of about – from the history of the Opera House was when it opened in 72, 73, it cost the government so much money that for the next 25 years, they basically said, look, we've spent a fortune on this building. We'll just do minimal maintenance on it. Then all of a sudden, the building, after 25 years of lack of significant maintenance, uh, they realised that they had to put some money into it to keep it running. So they started some major capital works programmes which were really – maintenance, but as well as changing the shape of the building, uh, internally revising the theatre spaces. I worked with the, the team inside the Opera House, and one of the things, because I was the receiver of most of the project deliverables at the end, I could see inconsistencies in the drawings and the operation and maintenance manuals, so I actually made a suggestion that, you know, let's start standardising this and getting some standards or guidelines that were opera house guidelines, opera house standards, that people would start to deliver their drawings to a set format um, and deliver operation and maintenance manuals, which were usually the first point of call when something went wrong, people would come to me and say, you know, can you tell me where the stop valve is for hydraulic system, such and such, and it'd be my job to find this. And I thought, well, would make my life easier. It'd be great, better if I knew exactly where it was in the O&M. And it, so the O&Ms were, we've got a step format for O&Ms, which follow a very set procedure, and that's what I sort of implemented. So my life at the Opera House was basically, you know, getting everything in the right place at the right time and, um, getting it so that I could find the information quickly to answer people's queries, which were usually nine times out of ten, an emergency, the show is opening in ten minutes, we need this, and that's really what I was there. But the trouble is, as much as the show might open in ten minutes, the, show, the building works 24-7, so the show would be opening in the evening when I'd gone home. They needed to have that information also available to them when I'd left the building. That was one of the reasons I thought, well, maybe a computer system that could gather all this information, hold it, and allow them to find it would be the solution. But I didn't know where that was at that stage.
0: So, so really, Chris, in many ways, I could almost end the conversation here because um, for most clients, that one piece of insight, which is one thing that I think is the most important thing, even if you forget about or if you take away the whole concept of BIM in itself and just actually, you know taking a step back from this whole model model world and, and going, you know what, all I want is to actually specify the way my information requirements are delivered for actually maintaining this asset, which is really, really, I guess, the most important part as a starting block.
1: Oh, it it is. It is. I mean, if you are the the person that people come to for this information, you can't find it quickly. You, you you just, sort of they'll go somewhere else. And, then, and the issue was that was happening at the Opera House, everybody had their own silo of information in a drawer. Yeah. And everyone was responsible for their own permission and, you know, like information was gold. If they they held it, they were in charge and they knew they had a job for life. <laughs> I mean, this just the problem. And a lot of the guys were actually getting to the point of uh, retirement, who had been with the building. Yeah. And when they started to leave, I said, look, whatever you do, just dump the information in my office. Whatever you don't want, give it to me and I'll be responsible. I'll make a library of this information. So basically it became, I became the librarian of all this engineering documentation and as a librarian, you've got to make it available and find it quickly. So it was sort of like a major exercise in indexing and filing this information away.
0: I guess we'll t- take a step, I guess, to, I guess, the BIM side of it. And uh, I was fortunate enough to meet you a couple of years ago. I'll be introduced to you a couple of years ago. Uh, I can't remember whether we met it up, up at RTC or, or whether it was actually when you came and first presented for us up here in, for Brisbane. But mm. over the last couple of years, you've done a number of presentations um, of the of the journey that the whole uh, facilities management team has been on at the Sydney Opera House. So we've, we've just touched on lightly, I guess, the the idea of, you know, just getting the, the operation and maintenance manuals right. Can you touch on the, the efforts and the work that the Sydney Opera House Trust has gone through with regards to implementing BIM across the site? And then I guess it's it's about what's it meant for them as, as the asset owner and then what has it meant for, for you as someone that's actually had to manage that information, and then and then I guess this is this very long <coughs> pronged question, but we've we've talked about just the maintenance manuals. But why why on earth would uh, the Sydney Opera House Trust look to begin a digital journey?
1: I don't think they realised they were on a digital journey when it happened. But um, I mean, it, it, from the trust perspective my director at the time this is going back at about 2002 2003 the portfolio the engineering portfolio director he had a very strong background in facility management and he also had a fairly strong knowledge of how technology could could be used to improve processes he was attending uh, a facilities management conference in 2003 and he nominated the opera house to be used as an exemplar project in collaboration with the Cooperative Research Centre for Construction Innovation, the CRCCI, yep. which is now the SBE NRC Sustainable Built Environment Natural National Research Centres, and he nominated the Opera House for this project, and it involved the CRCCI academic and industry partners, and the project also was aligned with federal government at the time. Its action uh, federal government's facilities management agenda. And I was nominated as the prime SOH contact for this research because it was basically information management and went on to participate in the development of the the initiatives, the outcomes and documentation from this research. And the final outcome of the building of the project was the publication of its findings and that was this uh, publication a lot of people probably know both nationally and internationally, which is FM as a business enabler solutions for managing the building environment. And, I mean, it's sort of like a reference document from 2006, 2007, which even now people come to me and say, oh, look, I was reading this document and you mentioned such and such. You know, not you, but it mentioned so and such. So. so, I mean, it's still a – I think at the time we didn't realise we'd made such a an all-encompassing sort of structural backbone for people to move forward as far as using BIM, building information management within facilities management. Yeah. Uh, and from – from the building information manager's role, I mean, from the Sydney Opera House Trust, it was all there from day one because the director was behind it. We, he was replaced by a second director, uh, Greg McTaggart, and Greg McTaggart, he fully supported me all the way through all of this attending conferences, giving presentations, literally allowing people to come to the Opera House to see what we were doing. I mean, it was always supported by the trust through the director's there was no sort of thing. The, uh, the, even financially, from time to time, you know, money would be granted for doing conversion of databases from you know capturing microfilm images and converting them to PDFs and attaching them to a database. So there was a lot of money put towards it on a probably a cycle of about six or seven years. So mm-hmm. I was very fortunate in that sense. From my perspective, uh, the more I became involved in the project, the more I could see how technology could be linked between physical assets and the wealth of information that was associated with each asset. Uh, instructions on its physical operation, its maintenance record, its geospatial location within the building. So at the time, my role was that of an engineering librarian, and finding information on the building and answering queries as to its structure, interrogating engineering drawings, and to locate you know, critical things like a shuttle valve. So it, it made life for me very easier to do it. And, and with the implementation of a building and management system, I could possibly just click on a. You know, the idea came to me that I could start clicking on a 3D model and having all this information attached to it yeah. rather than having to go and find it in a shelf or on, in a box or on a microfilm chart. I could see a future that literally would be maintenance teams doing that clicking themselves on their own web-based system. And that's really what sort of pushed me forward to continue trying to do this. And I basically tried to part that story onto so many people all the time to get people to understand what we were trying to achieve.
0: Now, you suggested that it's actually made your role easier and uh, yeah. which is understandable because you know I, I guess one question could be um, over the time at the Opera House when you started 18 years ago. You said you started with two large rooms full of drawings and stuff. Has your office uh, shrunk? <laughs> First uh, well, the office. I mean,
1: uh, it hasn't. Yes, we've we've literally removed the documentation, all, all of the. Paper files and paper copies and everything like that, uh, which were the drawings hanging in verti plans and all the rest of it, they've all uh, over time have been uh, scanned, indexed, PDFed, and so we've literally archived the physical drawings away. The OMs, I still am a believer of like a, a library as a, a collection of books, yes. and I mean, I, I went to the State Library of Victoria last week and walked in. And I, I think I saw about one person sitting in the main reading room with a book in front of them. Everybody else is there with their laptop. And I sort of think, why do you bother to come here? You could be at home. So for me, uh, a librarian's role is looking after books. So I insist that one copy, one physical copy of the o is kept in, on a shelf in a compactus. So we have this one room now, which is just full of the O&Ms, all indexed and put up on a on a compactus. The office has shrunk to the point that we now just sit at individual desks, but my job has gone from being one person by myself in this large double office space to now being eight people sharing common desks with a storeroom next door holding the O and M. So in a way the physical storage has gone, but it's all been replaced by people because now there is literally Eight people, in a way, required to maintain this system, and which is something a lot of people don't sort of think about. You know, the staffing levels to actually maintain a system like this—it it requires skilled people to do it.
0: And specifically, with the amount of work, I guess the challenge that a lot of people may not understand is the amount of work that is constantly going on on site on the Sydney Opera House site. There,
1: uh, or it, the number of
0: staff you need.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite. I mean, a normal maintenance team for a building in a, you know, a high rise building might be you know, two or three guys in the bottom of the in a room in the basement of the building uh, who bend all the things and call in people when works are required. But, I mean, the Opera House works. I mean, building portfolio is a staff of 70, 70 odd people. And uh, that 70 odd people is a whole team of project managers who, who manage external consultants in the design, the development, the delivery of a project. Our group, which looks after asset planning and information management, which is just when the deliverables come in, putting them away into the system. And then the other side of this is also looking at, um, there's a whole contracts management team that writes up all the contracts and does the business cases for the works and manages the contracts through the whole course of the project. And then you've got a whole other team which is doing the day-to-day maintenance, which is a series of um, opera house staff who actually have performance-based management contracts, contractors working inside the building. So, you know, a HVAC contract, uh, a plumbing contract, a building, you know, general carpentry-style contract. So, I mean, or cleaners, the whole thing. So, I mean, there's a lot of people to make that building run it's a, it's a major job and we're absolutely flat out because jobs run in parallel to each other. As soon as one job's finished, another one's starting. But most of the time, there's jobs running beside each other. So you, you, there's always work going on at the building.
0: I guess it would be scary for some asset owners hearing what you've just said and saying that, you know, your office used to be a one-man band, uh, <laughs> and now you've got a team of eight or 70, depending on how you go about it. Now. If it was a, if it wasn't a national treasure, or it's actually heritage listed, nothing uh, yeah, internationally yeah. through UNESCO, but if it wasn't an internationally uh, heritage listed building that uh, was at that age, do you think personally that the number of uh, the facilities management team would need to grow for most asset owners if they were to enable or inter- or implement digital processes?
1: I often use the analogy that if we, you know, if, if I was working for a sewage treatment works in one faggy or something like that.
0: Yeah. Good analogy. Have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Completely different.
1: Completely different. So if I was the FM manager or in the FM team for something like that, a sewage treatment works, I'm quite certain that this would never have happened. And, and it's literally, it's just the iconic nature of the building, the emphasis that people both nationally and internationally place upon the building as an, as the icon of Australia is Literally, the way, the reason why I've been fortunate enough to get to the point where I am with this at the moment. It requires a lot of understanding from managers to allow you to actually embark on a very cutting-edge, non-traditional approach to information management. For me, that was probably the that's where I was lucky to actually be allowed to do that. And I mean, the enthusiasm by my management to allow me to attend conferences to talk about it. I mean, if anything, it was sort of like it was inspirational for those who heard what was going on at the Opera House, but I suppose in a way it actually made the Opera House more sort of like um, a topic of people talking about it. For me, travelling the instances of being invited to talk about the building and what we're doing internationally, you'd walk into you know, Helsinki or you'd walk into something like this and as soon as you mentioned you were from the Opera House, it was like, you know, it said the magic word and the carpets were laid down and the doors were <laughs> open and you could walk in. And I mean, many a time I sat at very interesting dinner tables thinking, why am I here? I'm, a, I'm just the information manager and you're sitting with you know, captains of industry and, you know, professors, leading professors on subject matter. An unbelievable opportunity.
0: But I guess at the same time, you've talked about the fact that, you know, those opportunities, but... Going to those international conferences, has it actually, you know, opened up opportunities for you to then meet other people in the industry that have then also then assisted further development of the processes at the Sydney Opera House? Because, you know, if you're in your own bubble developing your own system, um, you're only going to know so much. But going out there and experiencing the whole, in, you know, the whole environment and the industry by going to these leading events means that your introductions can then lead to even bigger and better things.
1: Oh, it certainly has. It's strange. I, the first RTC conference I ever went to was in, um, it was, I think it was 2008 or nine in Wollongong. I gave a presentation there just about what we were, you know. No, I didn't even give a presentation. I was just talking about it in sort of like general conversation over dinner or drinks or something like that. And the chap who I was talking to at the night, at the time, Igor Starkov, he was now, would you, unbeknown, unbeknownst to me, he is now the CEO of the company that has actually provided the solution to the Opera House. (laughs) (laughs) One
0: conversation.
1: One conversation and all I, and apparently he said to me um, when they'd won the contract, because I didn't realise I'd spoken to this guy and, you know, eight years later, they won the contract to implement their system at the Opera House, work with us in developing it. And uh, he, the first meeting we had, face-to-face meeting, he said, he said, oh, he said I remember meeting you and he, he said, you gave me this inspiration of, you know, imagine being able to click on an asset and get all this information in a 3D model. And he said, I went away and I've been working on that for a long time. And here they are now, come back and actually done the system. So, yes, it has opened up sort of opportunities. Also. Just research, just being involved, asked to review papers by research people, research academics on different topics has been incredibly inspiring because you get to see what the industry would like to do, but from the academic sort of, you know, uh, looking right into the future rather than the practicalities of, can you do it? They just drop the practicalities and just say, this is what we'd like to do. Yeah. Yeah and then trying to make that work. Yeah, so definitely has had opportunities of being delivered for
0: that. Just kind of going a bit more nuts and bolts now, this probably might be useful for, for listeners as well in terms of understanding the journey that you've gone on so far. What digital processes or systems have been put in at the Sydney Opera House to date so that gets people can get an understanding? We've been talking kind of generally about it, but what Good. systems have been put in place so that people understand what, where you're up to on your journey?
1: I mean, the first thing was uh, developing an engineering drawing database. There was approximately 80,000 microfilms on the building (laughs) when I arrived there. And I mean, it was the the most incredibly documented construction process I've ever seen. As the cost got towards, you know, became incredibly prohibitive towards the end of its construction life, a lot of as-built documentation of what was built was never actually delivered. It was just finish it, get out of here. Um, A majority of the documentation we have, the engineering drawings are all more design rather than what was built. That's one of the first things. So I've got a, a proper engineering drawing database that links all of these documents and it's easy accessible. We have a strange thing called a rooms and doors database. Like everything at the Opera House, nothing is simple. The relationship between the space identifier, the room space, and the door that is on the, the door number on the front are different. If you know the way the door numbers and the room numbers are actually developed, how it's keyed, you know, there's a coding system to it. It's very simple. But the thing is, your door number isn't the space number behind it. Uh-huh. So we had we had to develop a, a rooms and doors database so that if someone typed in a door number, they knew what space was behind it. If they typed in the space number get the door number. So it's a very, very simple relationship. You know, you nearly do it in an Excel spreadsheet, but yeah. we wanted to just make it a little bit more automated than that. Then um, the other thing is every room and door is unique within the building, so there's no duplications of door numbers, and we can't afford to it because there is a electronic locking system that the security teams use to manage the building, and it's all dependent upon rooms and door spaces. I have an engineering document management system which is these days, originally when I joined it, it was called Trim. It's a Hewlett-Packard product, Trim. People might know it as RM8, and it's just being now converted to CM9, which is code names, but it's basically a, a document management system where you can scan or place all your electronic documents into an online library where you can just type it in, bring it up, and quickly you get access to it. So we have a, a proper document management system that holds all the operation and maintenance manuals, uh, engineering reports, reviews, certifications, inspection reports, et cetera, and they're all indexed and put away in that. Like most buildings, we've got a maintenance management system, main pack, which is a proprietary system that literally just uh, takes in the job orders from when people ring up and say, you know, the hot water's failed in my dressing room or we have got a leak in one of the one of the toilets or something like that. So it's all that day-to-day maintenance of the building plus also program maintenance for major works across the 12-month cycle or two-year, five-year maintenance life of an asset. So there's a maintenance management system. Um, obviously, BMCS, Building Management Control System, we have one of those uh, which monitors all the um, HVAC um, hydraulic fire theater systems in the building. We have an asset maintenance management system, so we know every object has an identifier on it, so we know when it was purchased, how much it was purchased, what its life, what its maintenance regime, regime is, what its replacement cost may be, so you can actually do some program maintenance for assets as they work through, and it also um, stock take for the financial side. I mean, they know exactly where the assets are located. So there's an asset management system. And then of late, the last thing that we've added to the thing is uh, the models, drawings and point cloud repository, which is all of our projects are required to do a deliverable. And the deliverable is the model, which reflects a verified as-built model of what the works have been. Any of the drawings that we used that were created as part of that project have to be delivered as uh, separate PDF files, and then we request that they do a point cloud of the as-built work, coordinated to our survey grid system, and literally it drapes over the model, the model, so that you actually see the relationship between the design and the as-built. That record of all those spatial records of the building and associated works is the last thing we've got. So we've got literally about seven major systems, which are engineering drawing database, the rooms and doors database, engineering document management system for the O&Ms, maintenance management system, BMCs for the building control, asset management, and the model management.
0: So just a few systems.
1: Just a few systems. Yeah.
0: And do yeah. they communicate? <laughs> where Where reasonable, do they communicate to one another?
1: Well, that's the solution that I saw as you know, I was working from from about two thousand and six on was always having everything related to a three D model and in the 3D model was the asset, yeah. and you click on the asset, depending upon what your query was, do you want to see the o or do you want to see the asset, you know, its, its financial status, or yeah. uh, do you want to see drawings about it, do you want to go and do some maintenance on it? All of that was the whole idea. So the solution that we have tried to build and um, it, it works is the fact that you click on an asset, and then all the information about it gets queried from the different databases that are holding that information. And I think one of the things that we adopted from the very start was the fact that we had all of these databases systems that were working quite comfortably, and we didn't want to break them just to go ahead and get a solution for us. So what we requested was all these other databases would remain running and we would just do uh, program queries into the database. So we do a, a, a query and say, give me this information and it'll be fed back. So, stage one of this whole project is just getting information from the databases. Stage two of the project, which could come in the future, is actually starting to control the information from the interface. You know, you could tweak the air conditioning temperature in your room by literally. Clicking on the sensor in the room and saying, "Oh, it's twenty-one degrees. Let, let's make it twenty-three and just dial in those new temperatures through the through the FM interface." Goes back to the respective system that it needs. So that is the future. That's what we'd like it to be. Is this two-way push-pull of information? But at the moment, it's primarily a pull of information. So you've got access to all the source data about the, the objects in the building.
0: And in many ways, that it also helped with change management because if people are still interacting with those same pieces of software or same interfaces that they're doing on a day-to-day basis, that hasn't changed at all. That and, hasn't all changed. and all you're doing is adding to it by having the other interface as an option for yeah, the people just, that are just, on, walking around on, on facility.
1: Yeah, we just have an overlay that sits over the top and just pulls all the queries out. You could nearly say like the triage nurse on the help desk, the person who receives the calls and says, you know, the hot water has failed in dressing room 72. Yes, all they do is just issue a plumbing request with all the information attached, you know, not even attached, they just issue that request to the maintenance team, and the maintenance team gets directions how to get to the dressing room through just logic yeah. of the system itself because it's got a 3D model. So you can say you've got to go down this hallway, down this staircase, etc., whatever. And then once they get there, they just click on it and say, give me the O&M or give me the last maintenance program or, you know, what was done to this asset. So that's the idea. That's the big rosy picture. It's, it's got a lot of tweaks to get things working. And, I mean, unfortunately, every time you adjust, you know, do an upgrade in a, in a system, you've got to do a little bit of a relink to get it all to work again. So it, it's not all roses. It's, there's quite a few thistles in the project. Oh, there's always those.
0: Now- yeah. As we've kind of touched on already, you've been responsible for developing uh, information requirements in terms of oh m manuals and, and, and document systems in terms of naming standards and stuff. One of the things that's really important, I think, to discuss or was one of our final kind of discussion points is in regards to um, some of the comments you've had in the past regarding COBE and, mm-hmm. and the decision of the Sydney Opera House Trust essentially to use COBE as the basis for your information requirements. A lot of people get confused by Kobe and they, and they get concerned by it. And one of my favourite kind of terms that I remember you talking about is your terms of Kobe light. One of the things that I think about a lot is, is that people forget that Kobe is just a schema, and it's essentially a map, essentially, which you can kind of, or it's almost like maybe even even better, you could call it a choose your own adventure story.
1: <laughs> well, it is. I mean, there's so many different tabs on the bloody thing to start with. <laughs> You've got to choose where you're going.
0: <laughs> but but I guess the, the base, the, can you talk about how you went about um, the process of making your selections. Because I remember, I think out of, out of the 24, 25 different um, properties that you can choose for a type, I think from mm-hmm. memory, you used to talk about in your presentations, I think 12 or 15 that you might have actually picked. So for, for elements and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I mean, like, like most people, when you open up a Kobe spreadsheet, you're just confronted with this massive document which has got so many things already pre-populated yeah. and you're sort of thinking well, where do I actually start on this what do I put in here and I mean you always get samples; you don't get like you know if you're lucky enough to get a blank then you're just equally as confused saying what do I do here because yes you can read all the instructions you can go on but what my issue was I spent many weeks looking at it trying to get a sort of like a, a, a the issue I had really was how do I get my external contractors who are working on the project to populate Kobe if I can't even really give them a sort of like very specific direction as to what to do? Yeah. So, and I mean, most tier one contractors, which was primarily where the Opera House would be dealing with, would certainly have the staff to undertake such a challenge. It was really my management looked at it and said, well, this is going to cost a lot of extra time. That's how they or yeah, a lot costs of extra money. Time. Yep. time cost money to actually complete this massive spreadsheet. So I sort of compromised and met him halfway and um, basically I, I did an investigation and tried to determine what the Opera House really needed out of the deliverable to make our systems run. And uh, the final solution was literally um, we ended up with, at the last count, I think we got 42 parameters embedded within the Revit template flow that we issue as the start of the project. Those parameters are specific to things like effectively assets. So it's the assets location, the assets description, you know the manufacturer model, serial number, et cetera. The assets maintenance regime, um, requirements for you know, how often you do this so you can actually set up uh, proper maintenance, preemptive maintenance rather than reactive maintenance. Yeah. The asset certification, you know, it's fire certifications, what's what did they comply with, so we've got all that assurance behind it. The assets financial records, how much money it cost, what's its depreciation rate, all of that, so it keeps our accountants happy in the building. Yeah. And the last thing was the assets corporate impact to the building. Because we've gone into an ISO fifty five thousand sort of regime and one of the air air conditioning pumps fails, it means you might not be able to put a performance on one of the theaters that night so it's not just the failure of the pump it's got the financial impact it's the fact that you've got a whole performance which can't happen yeah so it's becoming that preemptive maintenance on these assets so you say you do not let this thing fail you always get ahead of it even if it might cost money in the long term it's got a you know better benefit to it so we put that part of the the, the corporate impact of the asset on the into the Parameter list, And the reason and the way that we did it was we sort of suggested that the workflow of completing uh, these parameters is based upon literally a cascading responsibility for each team as the project progresses from concept to the design to the tender to construction to handover. We implemented a concept of generic library objects that go out with the Revit template. They just have specifications about the parameters of what that asset has to do. You know, a pump has a certain requirement and it's got to meet these conditions and such and such. We're not specifying the pump. It's up to the contractor who wins the tender to specify the pump, choose the pump, and actually update the parameter with the model and the serial and the purchase date and everything else. That's part of the deliverable at the end. At the end, in theory, the deliverable all the parameters are actually filled out on every asset as part of its journey through the progress and designed through to handover and commissioning. So that's how we approached Kobe Light. So we ended up with 42 parameters rather than 27 pages in a spreadsheet. And to date, that information can get easily extracted and just populate our Various systems that we need to be. Yeah, that's so, how we got around it. So, but that's yeah. not
0: I'm not getting around it at all. It's it's basically being an informed client, and for clients to actually understand that Kobe is just a schema, and it's not the only way you can go about things. You don't need all of it, and and you've clearly demonstrated that even for a major asset like the Sydney Opera House, you were um, able to adjust the the properties that you needed or information that you needed, yeah. and then at the same time, you've talked about the methodology in which it's delivered. So. Information is progressively provided by the different delivery teams of the project through design and construction, based upon the information that you need at the at the different times to make your decisions. So, it's a it's a it's a perfect example of why or how it should should work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, throughout our chat, we've talked about some of the kind of challenges that you faced, but I guess. You know, in terms of kind of coming close to a close to our discussion today, for those that are kind of thinking about it, what's kind of the major challenges that you faced along this journey? And I guess bearing in mind that you guys in your role have dealt with an existing asset compared to a brand new asset and an asset that's been built, you know, finished and opened in 1972. But at the same time, a lot of the stuff you've been doing has been pioneering.
1: In my presentations, I usually came up with sort of like uh, issues, the challenges that we've had across the thing. And I mean, there's two things that really stick out in my mind, which are not nothing to do with actually doing the work in a authoring software or anything like that. It's literally education, training, and, people. and training people, and disruptive change in the sense that you've got a lot of people who are just not prepared to move on in a truly effective and internationally recognised system of education and accreditation that you can rely upon so that when you employ a staff member, you know exactly they've got the skills that you need because our experience has been you interview people, you bring them on board, and once they sit down and start work, all of a sudden you realise they don't know much. And it would be nice to think that you could actually get accreditation in the education of BIM skilled people such that you knew that you were going to get your value for money rather than having to hold hands and take them on a learning journey for the first six weeks of their you know employment with you. As far as the disruptive change, I put it down as the passive resistance by the older management teams to change the way that they do their work. They've done it this way for the last 30 years. Why change now? They're ready to move on, I've done it this way all my life. Bugger these young ideas. I think it's going to be left up to the next generation, the kids that are literally in universities at the moment studying. Five-year-old these days knows how to spin a a Minecraft block on an iPad. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, a a 3D block on an iPad can be a a challenge for a 45-year-old, but a five-year-old in Minecraft can do it and move it around. So, I mean, these kids are growing up who are educated with technology, who are not scared of technology, who are graduating and now becoming the young practitioners of the work, when they get to the management level, which is like the late 30s, mid to late 30s, hopefully, they will expect this to be the norm. They will expect people to be working with 3D and, you know, why aren't you on board? It's the virtual and the real both coming together in a, a true working environment. So, I mean, for me, it's the paradigm shift from working independently in a silo, like guys, managers today who are not tech savvy to working collaboratively in a team with a team of a group of people who always support each other. Someone's got spectacular skills in one sort of particular area, which supports the people who haven't got it. So, I mean, as a team, I've always been a bit of a, for me, I'd rather have a team of people who are all, Using Paul Keating's sayings, the tall poppies, because each one of them is bringing along spectacular skills in a very narrow field, but as a team, makes the whole team excellent, that much better. So, I mean, that's how I sort of feel about the challenges or, you know, the, the question of, you know, what has been the biggest challenges? It's been the education to make certain people have got recognised skills and are capable of doing the work and getting over this concept of disruptive change of a generation later, we will have the people in place who can do the work without any issues. Without question.
0: But Chris, you and your role now as, as someone that's recently retired demonstrates it clearly that people of any age um, has the capacity to actually uh, undertake this journey and lead it. But at the same time, you know, it's just a matter of will and want.
1: Well, I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, I mean, just watching TV at night usually four remote controls beside you these days. So for me, uh, I mean, my partner has major challenges choosing which is the right control to even turn the machine on. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Maybe I've always been with technology, and it doesn't doesn't worry me.
0: Maybe that's why starting with um, radars—maybe is where you found your calling. I guess as a, as a final key question to close this out, and I think this is really important because this is where I think right now I think is the biggest struggle for um, facility managers that I talk to, or asset managers that I talk to. For the listeners that are out there that are currently on the client side of things and, and thinking about their, their beginning their digital transition, what size projects or asset portfolios do you think is the smallest you could be? before the client should start beginning to think about um, specific documented information requirements where, where would it become feasible
1: okay um,
0: that's a tough question I mean, sorry
1: <laughs> it's a tough tough question I mean one of the uh, I've been working on de- developing a series of digital engineering standards digital engineering standards for the Opera House which is basically trying to put all of this new technology into uh, a series of standards uh, standards that allows a project to go ahead and one of the things we went through was for a a project manager who's sitting there looking at project work coming up what are their requirements what would we from the asset planning and information management team want from the deliverable of each of the projects and we started off and we worked it out that we did some dollar figures and roughly between Thirty thousand and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It'd have some basic requirements for a digital delivery, and I mean sort of as-built drawings, uh, a structured digital O and M, and some necessary reports like hazard materials, or and as well as certifications. So, I mean, there's a sort of very basic sort of set of ex- expectations from a under twenty-five, two hundred and fifty thousand dollar project between two hundred and fifty and a million. 250000 to a million, it starts to tick most of the box for digital delivery. That would be as-built models, drawings, surveys, point clouds, uh, a comprehensive O&M documentation, including investigative reports and certification and photographic records of the project. If a project was in excess of a million dollars, we would require a fully contracted, embedded, signed BIM execution plan. So it has to be signed off by the contract to say he's aware that he's gonna to have to work in BIM, in the world of BIM, with 3D modeling, next expectation to actually use our temperate files, comply with our standards, our requirements and everything like that. So, and if they're lucky to get a you know a contract like that over a million dollars, yes, our portion of that million dollars is probably, you know, two or three yeah. percent you know, out of the whole thing. Um, so it's not a lot. It's not a lot of money, but the thing is, it does provide a lot of challenge, and that would, that would get verified as built uh, drawings, models, and point clouds. A full digital O and M, uh, comprehensive O and M, uh, delivered as uh, an indexed PDF, able to be separated within a document management system, so you could just pull up the drawings or the you know the emergency contact person or something like that very quickly. All the reports that are generated through the project from. You know, heritage, archaeological, whatever, right through to the you know fire reports, fire assessments, uh, security overlays, or something like that. All of that would be delivered as an indexed PDF document set, and uh, all the certifications for compliance and a fully indexed photographic record of the project from commencement to handover. So it's a fairly it's a fairly long list by the time you get over a million dollars. But the thing is, I think over a million dollars if you're prepared to make an investment of in excess of a million dollars, the information about that investment being delivered back to the to the owner of the asset would be an absolute, you know, uh, it's what they need. Otherwise, it's just like you may as well, you know, not even bother for an actual drawing of your building in excess of a million dollars. I mean, what happens the first time the council comes along and says, oh, look, we want to check your, your clearances or your, where you, you know, you've got a... a Uh, a drainage problem or something. So that's to me. So it's like there's up to 250,000 basic information. Yeah. 250 to a million, you get uh, an improved lot of information. You start to get some 3D modeling, but over a million dollars, you should be expecting to get potentially all the documentation delivered as the deliverable from the project.
0: Well, that's a very interesting position to take because there's a lot of projects around this country that are delivered just over that million-dollar mark for major, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, major asset holders. And uh, <coughs> if you think that, uh, that that threshold's actually a really good point to, you know, be feasible to enable you in your role that you've had as a facilities manager to perform your role more efficiently and more effectively, then... Mm. Then that should be the the benchmark that people could should could start to uh, to begin their journey.
1: I mean, the, the million dollars in the scheme of things these days is a very small figure as far as you know capital maintenance works. You know, it might be a fifty million dollar project to do uh, you know replace your heat generation set or something in a in a plant room. Yeah, but a um, million dollars, I believe, is sort of like you know a, a good point to say. And I mean, if you set it at $50 million, you're going to get nothing yeah. underneath it. Yeah. So you may as well say, look, guys, get used to this. We need, we're need. we moving into a new age here, and you've done a virtual design of the building. You've done all your testing in your virtual design. Why on earth not give the virtual design as well as the physical structure or project as the deliverable at the end? No,
0: that's an important point. But Chris, <laughs> yeah. thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today to discuss the reasons why... And, and why there are benefits as a facilities manager and embracing digital processes. So I have one final question, and it's one that I've been asking all of my guests. What does BIM mean to you?
1: I look at the industry at the moment and its focus is primarily on design construct side of BIM and I shake my head as to the potential of what the new field of digital engineering could provide for not only facilities managers but for the future for architects, engineers, designers, construction contractors. Yeah. A facility management team which had access to both the physical and the virtual replica of their facility, all the information and answers they need just a mouse click or a finger touch away, it's not that far away. And as I said before, maybe it's just a generation away. So for me, BIM, also known as building information management, not modeling, would truly have come of age if you could get to that point where you just touch on the object in the model and get all the information about it. And that to me would be the new age of digital engineering and what digital engineers could be for the future. So. Um, for me, BIM is the transition to this new world of digital engineering where information is available at the touch of a finger and it's all the information about the asset that you've designed, built and now operate.
0: Nice response from a person that receives normally, you've received good information because you specify it properly now, but I can imagine <laughs> uh, other people in your role right now kind of going, they, they envy your position where you're actually getting what you're after. Chris, thanks once again for your time. For more information on Chris Lenning and the Sydney Opera House, please head to our website and find links for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with the digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. digital transition.